Let me pray as we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for gathering us around your word. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, whom you sent to die on the cross for us. And now we pray, Lord, that your Spirit will guide us, open your word to us, and ask your word. And uh, Lord, we pray also that your Spirit will guide me to speak in the truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, before we begin, <clears throat> I need to uh, uh, apologize for three things. First of all, my voice is not what it is. Um, <laughs> there's something wrong with my throat. Um, secondly, <clears throat> you will see in the middle of your bulletin a very busy sermon guide, uh, which is not normally uh, not normal for me. Uh, but uh, don't worry about too many of these passages because I will read them out to you. What I would like you to do, though, is to um, uh, keep two bookmarks, first of all, on Romans 1, uh, on page 1120, and then Revelation 21, on page 1239. Romans 1, on page 1120, and Romans 21, uh, Revelation 21, on page 1239. And we will attempt to um, uh, look at that in more detail. The third thing I would like to apologize for is on the top of page 7, on the second line, there is a typo. Instead of Isaiah 35, verse 12, it should be Isaiah 53, verse 12. <clears throat> so, that's all we have to do. And um, our friends, over the last few weeks, we have looked at the four, four of the solas saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and according to Scripture alone. And today, we are looking at the last of the five solas in our Lenten series for the glory of God alone. But that raises the question, what is the meaning of glory? Let me give you a simple example, an illustration. Let me help to explain. I am a great fan of the men's sprint events on the track, especially the Olympics. That is the 100 meters, uh, 200 meters, and also the four by 100 meter relay. So when Husin Bot had hit, uh, won his ninth Olympic gold medal at Rio in 2016, I was ecstatic, very happy for him and for myself, along with many, many others, I think. But just at the beginning of this year, Hussein Bolt has his ninth gold medal stripped away from him. And I was devastated, along with many others also, I think. They took away his Beijing gold medal for the 4 by 100 meters relay because one of his um, teammates was found to have taken a banned substance. And so, he could not achieve his crowning glory of nine goals, or the triple-triple, as they call it in sporting language. And in this short illustration, we can see two things about glory. Firstly, the glory of the record, the triple-triple. The internal or the intrinsic value of the record because of the difficulty in achieving it. Secondly, the glory that human beings, that we, give to the person who is worthy enough 
or capable enough to achieve this. It is the external proclamation of honour or admiration or even adoration or hero worship that we give to whoever can achieve it. Now that's okay when we come to speak in human terms. But when we come to speak of the glory of God, we are faced with an almost impossible task because human language is just not sufficient. So we use words, and you will hear this a lot as we go on in my sharing with you. We use a lot of words like majestic or supreme or one word that you hear really a lot, infinite. Uh, infinite it just means uh, something beyond or above what human beings can measure. Infinite. So let us try and see and look at the glory of God in the same two separate senses as the uh, spotting illustration uh, earlier. Firstly, the glory of God being His infinite internal or intrinsic value, God's perfection, His total holiness, His infinite beauty and His infinite greatness, His infinite radiance, His perfect honour or reputation and His supreme love and mercy. Secondly, the glory of God being what should have been the ultimate or final object, objective of human expression of honour, of praise, veneration, worship, wonder and awe. And today we will be looking at three areas. Firstly, the creation. Second, the cross. And thirdly, the new creation. So, let's look at the creation for the glory of God alone. Just now we read just a small portion of Genesis 1 that talks about the creation of man. Created in the image and likeness of God. It would have been wonderful if we can read, if, if we could have read from uh, the whole account from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2. And our regulars will remember that a couple of years ago we did a series on Genesis and how we saw the all-powerful God made the whole creation out of nothing, and how God put man on top or at the apex of his creation, and how men and women were to rule God's creation on God's behalf. And above all, God gave them everything else necessary to live a great life together with him in the Garden of Eden. Over and above this, as a further sign of God's glory, God has also given humanity the freedom to choose, to recognize God's infinite glory and therefore to give glory to Him and to Him alone or choose not to do so. What this means is that humanity has the freedom to choose to live within God's set boundaries of safety under His care and love and blessing or humanity can choose to disobey him and choose to be free from God. But God made it clear, the second choice can only lead to death because it will be separation from the one who created them, the one who gave them, who gave them the breath of life. Friends, look at the mess we are in right now that we have made for ourselves because we chose to be free from God. How blind are we not to see what the psalmist in Psalm 104 describes as the unimaginable and infinite power of God. 
God clothed in splendor and majesty, covering himself with light like a garment. Painting a picture of God stretching out the heavens. Here in our hymn, it says, um, stretching out like a curtain. But in the ESV version, you will see that it's, it, it is a description of God stretching out the heavens like stretching out the folds of a tent to make it provide suitable covering and shelter. God, God's glory shone as he rides on chariots of clouds, which were themselves carried along by the winds. God is fixing the boundaries of the very foundations of the earth. And how, at his gaze, the earth trembles, and the very mountains burn and smoke at God's touch. And as if to top it all, the psalmist proclaims in Psalm verse uh, 104 verse 31, may the Lord rejoice in his works and in our uh, blue sheet. Uh, it is translated as the glory of the mighty God continue shall be forever. The Lord Jehovah shall rejoice in all his works together. In his infinite glory, God has created the world for his own rejoicing, for his own glory. Yet, Humanity chose to deny God and thus come under his judgment. The Bible tells us in Romans 1, uh, verses 19 to 23, on page 1120, and let me read it to you in this way. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they, become, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images remained uh, resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. And in verse 32, Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And it's not something new. It has been right from the very beginning. If you look at the Bible in Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. In Psalm 14, verse 3, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none that does good, not even one. Proverbs 20, verse 9, who can say, I have made my heart pure. I am clean from my sin. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 20, surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Friends, forsaking God, Humanity has sought and continue to seek to satisfy the lusts of our hearts. We are doomed to die. God needs to display his infinite power once again in saving a people for himself. And this he did at the cross. Now when we come to speak of the cross for the glory of God alone, we are faced with another question. This time, the question is, why can't God just ignore sin and just look the other way. After all, he loves us so much. Now the passage 
from Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 3 on page 683, gives us a glimpse as to the real reason. It is because God is totally holy. The prophet Isaiah was given a vision of God sitting on his throne with the seraphim surrounding his throne. These mighty angels were leading in worship, exclaiming and singing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. A worship that, is so, that was so amazing that the very foundations of the temple shook and it filled with smoke. You see, friends, the glory of God cannot be separated from his holiness. A holiness that is so pure that God cannot allow even the smallest impurity, even the smallest impureness to be in his presence. One Christian writer described it as God being allergic to sin, so to speak. God just cannot look at it. He cannot bear sin. For if God can allow sin, can ignore sin, then he cannot be the God that we love we know and worship. Yet, God is infinitely loving, isn't he? Because that is part of God's nature, his very being itself, the intrinsic quality, his perfection. The way God answered our question lies in the story of Jesus and Nicodemus in John 3. Nicodemus, a very important leader, of the Jews, came secretly at night to get some answers from Jesus. It's a very uh, popular story that we read uh, many times in a year. Now, Jesus' answer caused Nicodemus to be even more confused because Jesus answered this way, unless a man is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Nicodemus asked, how could that be? Jesus answered, in John 3.16, is the ultimate description of God's supreme love for sinful humanity. In His holiness, God cannot ignore sin, but in His love, God can save a people for Himself. So Jesus answered this way, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The God who loves us so much that he sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross so that we believing in him can be saved. Faith in Jesus results in the spirit working in us to change us, to mold us into the new person. We are born again into the new person through Jesus' death and by the work of the spirit of God. The promise that Jesus will be sent to fulfill God's promise in the Garden of Eden to redeem the world was made even as God pronounced judgment on the world. In Genesis 3.15, the woman's seed will come and though he will be hurt, he will get rid of Satan, sin and death. Humanity's sin continued throughout history and is captured in the pages of Scripture as well. But God remains faithful to his promise. For example, in the book of Judges, we see how Israel, God's people, struggle with this eternal cycle, so it seems, of sin and salvation. The people of God sin and God send punishment. Then the people repent 
and God sent a saviour, a judge, to save them from their sin, from their punishment. And there was peace for a while, normally lasting for about 40 years. Before the next cycle of sin, punishment or judgment and repentance and salvation comes again. It seems unending. The prophet Isaiah, whom we mentioned before, who lived 700 years before the birth of Christ, prophesied about the righteous servant of God who would come to bear the punishment of his people. And it is, it is at the cross that God deals once and for all with sin. At the cross, the infinitely holy God declares the sinner not guilty. Jesus died on the cross to display God's infinite glory in God's supreme love for his people, displayed in sacrificing his only son for the sins of the world. Friends, to those who respond to Jesus, the cross is also the symbol of discipleship. In Mark 8, verse 34, we read, Jesus calling the crowd to him with his disciples said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Friends, discipleship means to follow Jesus. And discipleship can only be carried out by us only through total faithfulness to him. And we, being disciples, express in our own small way the love so supremely expressed by him on that amazing cross. That cross where we die to our own glory and follow our Lord Jesus to his glory. The Bible tells us this is a very hard thing to understand, to, to uh, comprehend. The Bible tells us the cross only makes sense to those who are saved, as we read in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 23 to 24. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Friends, the cross is folly to the world. But to those who believe, the cross displayed the majestic glory of God as Christ triumphed over sin and death. So where do we go from here? The next thing that we will be looking forward to is the new creation, which will be for the glory of God alone. Now, friends, the Bible is clear that this life, this life, this earth, this physical reality in which we, are, we live in is only temporary. And over the past few months of this year and the past few months of the, the previous year, I have had many old and lovely friends who have left and passed away into the glory of the Lord, reminding me that really this life is really temporary. Because of sin, the whole creation, not only humanity whose sin caused it in the beginning, the whole creation suffers from corruption and decay, groaning in pain, waiting, waiting eagerly for the day when this will no longer be necessary. The day has already been won for us by Jesus Christ on the cross, as we have seen previously. And now the whole creation waits along with humanity for that glorious day when Christ would return and restores all things to newness again. 
the new creation with new heavens and a new earth. The Apostle Peter describes it like this in 2 Peter uh, chapter 3, verses 10 to 14, on page 12, 15. Let me read to you. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for this, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. Christians do not fear the stripping away of the old creation with, with, with all its decay and death. We look forward to a time where there is no sin, where there is no spot, where there is no blemish, but where only righteousness and peace reigns in the glorious presence of the Lord. The Apostle John was given this vision in Revelation 21. And again, let me read to you. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and the sea, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and there will be his people, and God himself be, will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. You flip the page, you can move to verse 10. And he, one of the seven angels, carried me, John, away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a moss ray jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And in verse 22, I, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And in verse 27, But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. John confirms what Peter has written. He saw in his vision something that confirms what, Jesus, what Peter has written. And Christians look forward to this glorious future with God and His Son, Jesus Christ. In that physical, physical place that we know as heaven, here in Revelation described as a new earth and the new Jerusalem. But however we understand heaven to be, this will be a real place and we will have real bodies capable of crying and mourning, though we need not do that anymore. But most glorious of all, we will be in the physical presence of God and His Son, enjoying the glorious fellowship with our triune God, safe and at peace in the everlasting light of His glory. Revelation 22 verse 5, this will be the last verse, I promise you. Revelation 22 verse 5 describes the people of God as, they will reign forever and ever. God will indeed restore all things. God will restore man to what God has created him to be right from the very beginning, rulers of his creation. 
So in conclusion, let me just quickly sum up what we have discussed just now in three points. First of all, men in creation were created for God's glory. But because men chose to be free from God, we came under God's judgment and by ourselves can never be friends with God again, doomed to die, separated from Him. Secondly, God in His infinite mercy and love acted in history. <clears throat> On the cross of His only Son, Jesus Christ, He restores this relationship that has been broken by sin. On the gross cross, Jesus took upon himself the sin of the whole world and make us whole again before God. And thirdly, Jesus will come again and restore all things to his original intended purpose. Jesus will unite all things in him and God's people will rule creation just as the Creator has intended it to be right from the beginning. Now friends, 500 years ago, the reformers asked searching questions as they saw the church glorifying itself rather than glorifying God. How the church glorifies its buildings rather than the cornerstone on which the universal church was built and held together. How they obtained contributions even from people who were too poor to provide even three meals a day. They collect this to make their churches more glamorous and more glorious. They glorify their churches instead of the cornerstone on which the church was built and continued to be held together. How the church glorified its traditions of scripture, which is the word of God, the truth of God. And how the church elevates the Pope over Christ himself, who alone died on the cross for the sins of the whole world. How the freely free gift of God, His grace, was confused with human theologies of self-worth and intent and merit. The downgrading of faith by attempting to add to it true works of self-earned salvation. Now, though we don't face such uh, earth-shaking questions and issues today, we still need to ask some questions of ourselves. Among them are, do we give up, do we glorify God? Do we really glorify Him? Or do we give up church and listening to God's Word because there's something better going on, like watching Who's in Boat live on Sports Channel? Or do we, we do indeed come to church, but we come to church only because it's very entertaining the preacher always tells funny stories that make us laugh and feel good about ourselves. Or the powerful uh, church band really makes my heart want to burst out from my chest. It's very entertaining. Or do we need to pray to other saints alive or dead to intercede for us? Or perhaps even Mary, the mother of Jesus? Do we value material things or titles or achievements over God? Do we share with others our awe, our wonder, our love of the God who would become man and die for us? Such are the questions that face us rather than the big earth-shaking questions that, uh, that the reformers faced 500 years ago. And each of these questions, if we answer in the wrong way, 
takes the glory away from God and glorify ourselves or his creation. And we know that God is not pleased for he has sent his son to die to save us, to be a people, to give him glory and him, uh, give him glory and glory only to him alone. That is something that we must take home with us today. Is everything we do um, something that glorifies God? Do we make choices that glorifies God or we choose to glorify ourselves? So something for us to bring back with us uh, this evening. And as we conclude, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the timely reminder that we as humans tend to glorify ourselves more than we look towards glorifying God and Him alone. We pray, Father, that your Spirit will guide us continually, reminding us that this is something that God doesn't like and uh, has sacrificed so much to gather a people for himself. We pray, Father, that you uh, will continue to guide us and give us this, uh, uh, this wisdom, this knowledge, and uh, to rely on your strength to be, to be people that will be glorifying you in all the things that we do in our lives. And we pray, Father, that your spirit will give us the strength to go on to do this. In Jesus' name we pray.